Good morning. Well, I think we're organised. I've uh, spent a little bit of time getting set up and we've been playing with Zoom connections and that sort of thing. And there was a bit of concern about whether maybe we were an hour out from our planned uh, get together. But I think we've finally made it. So I'm here. It's um, it's actually weekend. Um, it's uh, what time is it now? It's coming up to quarter past nine uk time i'm really pleased to have vanessa Beely with me and uh, vanessa's been kind enough to say that she joined me for an hour's chat and of course i've in i've invited her to speak to me because i absolutely put vanessa Beely in the gutsy woman category <laughs> and uh, vanessa thank you very much for taking the time to join me today because i know you've got some really important other personal stuff to do so thank you no i know you're welcome brian it's always a pleasure talking to you anyway okay thank you for that well the aim of this is um is that i've i've recognized for quite some time that that where are the men i i'm allowed to say this i'm not a particularly big bloke but i feel i've put my head above the parapet over quite a few years i've experience some interesting things when i've tried to stand up and tell the truth and support people i've had the police at my house several times in fact in my house which is uh which was an interesting experience it refocuses your view of how the world works in your own country at least but uh i've i've just you know felt sometimes where are the men and uh, the other thing is that from the earliest days in the UK column, it was women that were coming forward, certainly to support me and um, bring the UK column into into being. So I've got a lo lot of time for the gutsy women. And uh, I thought I'd get you to... I'd get, <laughs> I'm going to laugh now. I thought I'd get you to come and talk to me and um, tell the audience in the beginning a little bit about yourself. So it's up to you. Uh, what you want to share with us it's it's your life but first question Vanessa is how did you get started with doing this you're now operating as a an independent journalist you've put yourself in some pretty dangerous positions in reporting from troubled spots around the world tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got on this journey oh gosh um I always find it quite difficult talking about myself anyway not not because of a confidentiality issue but just i don't know i think as journalists you're used to transmitting the voices of others and keeping your voice silent and i think you know it's then quite difficult to to um, bring yourself out into the open um i guess really uh, as i've said a few times before it, it probably started as a kid. I mean, I grew up with a dad who was um, known as being one of the most iconic Arabists of his time, described as such even by Peter Ford, the former UK ambassador um, to Syria in 2003 to six. Um, so I grew up in a household, although I wasn't, you know, tuning into it maybe, except on a subliminal basis and by osmosis, I absorbed this knowledge of the Middle East, the situation with Palestine. My father, of course, was a lifelong uh, advocate for Palestinian justice and the end of the uh, Zionist um, colonialist occupation. And as I said, even though I probably, you know, I wasn't politically active during the years that he was alive, um, I led a relatively normal life. I did study journalism as a teenager because I decided I, I always loved writing. And then my my I, I actually lost three very obviously very close family members: my brother-in-law in '99, my mother in 2000, and my dad in 2001. And I think that was a massive um, traumatizing. Uh, my brother-in-law was was actually murdered. Um, my mother died from a protracted uh, cancer, you know, suffering from various forms of cancer. And my dad was 92, had had multiple strokes. So 
it, it was a very, as I said, tumultuous time. And I think when my father died, I decided that rather than keep working in the corporate world where I was, um, I needed to make some changes. What I wanted to say to you is just just to set the scene. Um, did your early life start overseas or did you spend some time in UK? Just just. No, um, I, I was born in Tavistock in Devon, which you probably know. I didn't, uh, I didn't actually. It, That's very yeah. interesting. You kept that one very quiet. <laughs> um, and then um, my father at the time was stationed in Geneva. So at two months old, I was basically uprooted from the UK and taken to uh, Geneva. He was then um, sent to, or he was requested actually by President Nasser in 1967. So I was three years old then. Um, to come back to Cairo as the peace envoy after the Six-Day War, when, of course, uh, Egypt had effectively been betrayed um, by Britain, France, Israel. Um, and so my dad was sent as a special peace envoy come ambassador to Cairo in 67, and I went with him as a three-year-old. But I, I have actually, strangely, very vivid memories of the embassy in Cairo, of life in Cairo, I loved it. I mean, I, even as a kid, I was very comfortable in that environment. In fact, my, my mother told me I was constantly running away from my nanny and could be found in the mosque or in, um, you know, in, in somewhere that I really wasn't supposed to be and would be brought back home. Well, there we are. The audience won't know, but in... Uh... Uh, a few minutes we had a little bit of fun with connections and Vanessa lost well hasn't got electricity where she is at the moment so um, <laughs> we've had to revert to alternative means to speak so well done the fun. <laughs> <laughs> all right well um, Vanessa you were you were saying that uh, when when you were in Cairo with your father and the family you were very taken by life and uh you would escape from your did you say nanny i think so yes uh, <laughs> and will be found in various places including the mosque so you moved from tavistock you ended up uh right the Geneva. way the world um, yeah pretty much as a, as a kid and then um my dad retired actually in 69 i mean he was 55 when i was born i don't think i was very expected um, it was basically both my parents' second marriage. They both had children from the first marriage. Um, but yeah, so he was 55 when I was born. He retired in uh, 69. And so then we came back to, to London, basically. Okay. And so what what were you doing then? I'm not going to... Pro I, I know you're giving us <laughs> dates, but I'm not going to put two and two together and work out your age. Well, it's exactly. relatively easy. <laughs> Okay, so you came back to you came back to London, and then then what were you doing? Oh well, I mean, then I was just you know going going through the whole school process, work process, etc. I mean, you know, that part of my life I don't think has any huge relevance to um, what I'm doing now, except for the fact that, of course. Um, you know, as I said, my father's work continued long after his retirement. I mean, I think it was in 76, he opened the World of Islam Trust in, in London to try and, I guess, bridge the lack of appreciation of Islamic culture and art and um, history, heritage and so on. Um, and, and as I said, you know, he continued on this track very much. I mean my mother also having um, <clears throat> obviously also herself retired to some degree but then she started her own business um, for clothing from the middle east which she established with a partner god i think uh, hmm, <laughs> sometime in the 80s i can't remember exact dates i'm hopeless on on that kind of thing and so you know both of them continued very much along the same track so i guess as even as a teenager, as a young adult, I, I was still um, very much absorbing um, the Middle Eastern culture. But I think what happened for me after 
um, the various losses that I had, um, particularly after my father died in 2001. And I inherited or, or ended up with all of his confidential papers and diaries and so on. And my father was not a very, you know, he was rather Victorian. Children should be seen and not heard. Um, he had a, a, a huge intellect. I mean, he came from working class background, socialist background uh, from uh, North Lancashire. But as an only child, he achieved scholarships into almost every school and university that he went to. Um, and he actually trained as he, he went to um, Oxford University as, to train as a um, Methodist priest and then basically um, uh, I, I don't quite know what happened but he, in the meantime he became atheist and then flipped over to the foreign office and he was in fact one of the youngest ever ambassadors to be appointed from within the foreign office right um, so but you know he, he was a bit of an enigma as, as a as a father I mean we, we weren't particularly close because emotionally he was rather closed off his work was his world his work was his passion and really in in some ways the family was rather secondary to that particularly children we were just you know I was just probably quite annoying <laughs> from his perspective but I think after he um died in 2001 I actually sadly got to know him much much better than I had in life through reading his diaries and discovering this kind of wellspring of of emotion and and um passion particularly for my mother but also for the Middle East for um the cause I guess that he fought for which again as I've said was for you know preventing the settlement of European um, immigrants into Palestine and the theft of land by the Zionist project. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's what kind of then set me off on the next part of my journey. Okay, so what, what was the actual trigger then um, that <clears throat> took you into what, well, let's call it journalism. What what happened, and what was the what was the first thing you sort of got involved in, which meant that you were speaking out? Um, I think I'd always been. Uh, some people, and I, I probably shouldn't say that, but I was always described as a mouthy so and so. I won't say the second word. <laughs> I was always in trouble at school. I was always in trouble at work because I would always defend the underdog. Um, I was forever getting into hot water with with my various bosses and headmasters and so on. I, and at one point that my final school <laughs> myself and my best friend actually had a weekly meeting with the headmistress because as she said well you're bound to have done something in the week in between <laughs> so <laughs> so I, I I don't know I always had a penchant for, for for trouble anyway regardless of whether it was at that point in the work I do now or not um, and I think how I got into it initially was through activism um and i think a lot i know that eva uh, bartlett dear friend of mine that hopefully you'll be talking to um her path into it was very much through the same uh, way and um so after my dad died the first thing that i wanted to do because um because really Egypt for him held such a special place in his heart and equally he held a special place in the heart of Egypt because of his role as very much uh, an, uh, uh, a supporter of Egypt, particularly against the British government. Um, I wanted to go because there had been trees planted for him in the gardens of one of the museums, one of his favorite museums in Cairo. But it, how it happened really was I thought, well, I'm going to Cairo. I might as well try to go to, to Gaza and actually you know, discover for myself. So I uh, was given an invitation by uh, an orphanage in the Al-Amal Institute in Gaza to come and teach English for two weeks to kids, orphans of all ages. 
in Gaza. So basically that was where it all started. I went to Cairo, which was a very odd, um, in fact, one of the strangest things, and I haven't really talked about this ever, but I remember being back on the streets of Cairo and, and remembering it quite vividly. And I was crossing a road and this elderly man came up to me and he said, he basically said to me, who are you? And I said, well, um, you know, and I, I gave him my first name and he said, you remind me of someone. And, and we start, anyway, we started this whole conversation and it turned out he knew my father. So this, I mean, this was literally in the first two days of being back in Cairo for the first time since uh, 69. Uh, and I revisited the embassy, very, uh, very nice ambassador actually, very, again, very pro-Palestine. Um, I wrote to them and, and they invited me back to the embassy, which hadn't changed at all. And then um, basically I got all the permissions I needed to go to Gaza and then it was a series of disasters because people may not realize the Rafa crossing, which is in the Sinai desert near to uh, Al-Arish, even though it's officially on Egyptian territory, it's very much controlled by the Zionists. So despite having all the paperwork and despite queuing for hours with thousands of Palestinians trying to get through these tiny gates that they open up, it, it's a continuous humiliation process, by the way, of Palestinians, whether it's from Egypt or from the Zionists or from the Jordanians, it doesn't matter. Um, we were basically spun. Uh, and so this went on. This is where I actually met Eva Bartlett, by the way, was at the Rafa crossing. Um, in July 2012. She got in because she'd been uh, basically living there for some time. And uh, on, I think it was the third attempt, I entered Gaza by the tunnels. So that was in November 2012. Uh, and then three days after I entered, uh, the Israeli aggression of 2012 began. So having entered the tunnels, and therefore having no official visa through Egypt, I had no exit route either. Not that I would have left in any case, because of course I would stay um, in solidarity with the Palestinian people. You know, it's not, I, I would consider it an injustice if me as a Westerner, I can just walk back out and leave them to the bombs. Um, when they don't have that same that same privilege, Vanessa, if if I can just come come in there because mm. the the what we're doing is about gutsy gutsy women, and I'm going to say straight away, I can imagine that that actually to go into Gaza via those tunnels um, when when you're not fully um, uh, what's the word you haven't you haven't got all the permissions that takes some guts to do. Um, so straight away you've you've well you've told me some things you know you've said well at school I was a bit of a rebel and uh, <laughs> makes me smile because the other women I've talked to who are the ones speaking up and standing up to be counted they've all got something in their backgrounds which is that they didn't uh, they didn't sort of take the establishment lightly so mm. you've clearly got those attributes but you're telling us straight away that one of the first things you did is is to go into Gaza through the tunnels. And I, yeah, that must have taken some courage to do. I don't know how you felt at the time. Um, well, I'm quite claustrophobic. <laughs> one of my, I think probably one of my biggest phobias is, is being trapped, um, particularly underground. So it, it, it was myself and another um, colleague who he was going to be coming and working with me in the orphanage. Um, so at that time, I wasn't even a journalist, you know, so I wasn't really used to this kind of thing at all. But I decided, well, I'm here, you know, and um, the tunnels were not actually that bad. I mean, you could stand up inside of them. They were very well uh, shored up. There was some lighting. And then when you reach the end, there's a little kind of pulley lift that, that brings you up into um, daylight, so to speak. And then we were just straight in a taxi and driving through the streets of Gaza from the south. So from Rafa through Khan Yunus, 
up to uh, Gaza City to <clears throat> the Corniche, which is the area on the uh, sea front. And in fact, very sadly, one of the hotels that really we all used to frequent when we'd finished working and so on and just sit and drink watermelon juice and look at the amazing sunsets and so on has been bombed into oblivion um, by the recent uh, Zionist ethnic cleansing program again, you know. Um, so again, a lot of what I what I lived through in Gaza, the, the people and so on, I don't even know if they're alive now. I managed to get through to one person yesterday for the first time in, what is it now, almost 70 days. Um, and he's basically been displaced two or three times. Um, he's seen horrific, horrific things. I mean, in 2012, you know, there were some very horrific things going on, but nothing like now. And Eva will say the same thing. She was there in 2008-9 also. Um, but as she says, both of these, or, or all three of the, 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 what they call euphemistically mowing the lawn. So in 2008-9, 2012-2014, nothing compares to, to what is going on now. Yeah. I can't even, I can't even imagine it. So, you know, that was my first experience, really. And, and as I said, within two days, we had gone to uh, Khan Yunus and literally right in front of us, a 13-year-old boy, Hamid Abu Dugga, was mown down by a Apache helicopter while he was playing football outside his house. And this is in peacetime. Uh, and Israeli tanks had uh, entered uh, Gazan territory also within Khan Yunus. And so that was a very sort of, um, I guess, a, you know, a very fast um, <clears throat> introduction to what my life would be like for the next uh, 10, 12 years, um, because almost immediately we were involved in speaking to the family uh, in filming and in, um, you know, just recording so Vanessa, witness statements is, and so on. Yeah. Vanessa, is it fair to say, therefore, that, that uh, it was your connection with Eva that got, that drew you into the, the reporting side? No, not really. At that point, I didn't know Eva. You know, I'd met her at, at, the rougher border but then our paths didn't really cross she was there in 2012 but we were staying in different areas I didn't see her and in fact I didn't see her again we bumped into each other serendipitously uh, in Cairo in 2013 when I was waiting to go back to Gaza um, and then we again we didn't really we stayed in touch by then I was already writing and, and photographing. And in fact, in Gaza is where I learned photography. I've never learned it professionally, but I just discovered that I, you know, I had a good eye um, and I wasn't bad at it. So I just developed it from there, but it began inside Gaza. Right. So what would um, you consider your first report from, from Gaza? And what, what uh, did... I think it, it's I think it's the first report on my blog, The Wall Will Fall. And I think it was about, um, again, prisoners being stripped naked and being uh, taken out of the strip to an unknown destination. And in fact, from memory, the majority of them were never returned. So I think that was the first time that I actually wrote about something that was, you know, something factual. I wrote about my experiences. I mean, I do remember the Israelis would generally, the, the worst bombing was at night. Um, then it was just like a bombing frenzy because you would have it from the sea, you would have it from tanks, from Apache helicopters, from warplanes, uh, from drones. I mean, walking in the street was, was, was high risk. And um, I remember one night it'd been particularly intensive bombing campaign and they were using heavy duty 
I mean, really heavy duty bombs, concussion bombs, uh, bunker buster bombs and so on. Um, and usually around 5 a.m., the planes would leave to go and refuel and there would be a sort of a temporary lull. And I remember at this time being out uh, on, on, I think it was on the roof of our building and it went quiet and suddenly the azan, the prayer from all the mosques, it began in one mosque and then it spread from one mosque to the other mosque to the other mosque to the other mosque. And it was the most eerie sound and yet the most uplifting sound. It was almost a sound of defiance that even after all of this bombing, with the sun rising, the prayer just echoed out across the sea in front of us in this, this weird calm. Um, and that's something that has always stayed with me. And, and it's always demonstrated to me this, this defiance of a belief in all the things that Palestinians believe in. And, and one of the, you know, one of the things that I guess I took away from my time in Gaza then was this lack of hate within Palestinian hearts. It didn't exist. Even, even the parents and the family of the 13 year old boy that was just shot in, in front of them for no reason, he was playing football. I didn't once hear them condemn Israel. All I heard was confusion. Like, don't, don't these pilots have children? How can they kill a child? How can they take someone's son like this? You know, and, and this was really universal in Gaza. There was no hate. There was just um, a belief in justice, a belief in their ultimate freedom from the horrors that they were being forced to live through basically in, in what is a concentration camp, a prison, completely enclosed on all sides, even on, on the beach side because Israel patrols the waters, the fishermen are fired on on a daily basis from you know 6 a.m. in the morning onwards. And to find this incredible humanity in this bomb-strewn, dusty, litter-covered, sprawling environment, you know, constantly under attack, constantly under siege, constantly under pressure. Even in peacetime, the planes would, would fly through at a speed that would create sonic booms that sound like a, a bomb being dropped. So these people never had any respite. They never have any respite. I mean, if we look at what's happening now, but even then there was no respite ever. And yet they could still laugh. I remember, you know, even during the aggression, there was still a wedding on Saturday, on one Saturday, there was still a wedding in the morning <laughs> and there was still dancing and there was still people trying to enjoy themselves amongst all of the carnage, all of the, you know, the hideous environment that they're forced to live in. Yeah. Vanessa, you, you, um, you've, you've talked about, um, taking photographs, you talked about uh, writing about what's happening. What what was the reaction that you got when you started to put out that information? Um, well, I think back then it was very muted because, you know, people um, didn't really know me. I think really it only became um an issue when when Eva and I started reporting on Syria and and I was going to say you know when I got back in touch with Eva in 2013 she'd already established the Syria solidarity movement as it was then um and she asked me to join I mean the other thing just to point out I left Gaza in 2000 because sorry I was there in 2012. I went back in 2013 to establish a project for the orphans and the kids that were suffering with ADHD to try and use nature, um, particularly horses, because there were two equestrian centers in Gaza, um, to introduce the kids to horses, to animals, to nature, to uh, try and help with their trauma through 
these ways. And so I was actually negotiating residency in Gaza when I was diagnosed with cancer. In Gaza, I think <laughs> I must be the only Westerner to have been diagnosed in Gaza. Um, so at that point, I had to come back to France um, for about a year's cancer treatment, but I was still in touch with Eva. And as I said, that's when I started to get interested in what was going on in Syria, because it was very obvious to me that, um, you know, it wasn't all as it appeared. Um, and so I guess when I was writing from inside Gaza, I mean, I do remember, I, I think my first ever interview <laughs> and I, I mean, looking back on it, it, it's funny in a way, but at the time it was quite terrifying also, um, was that I was asked on, I can't remember which channel it was, and it was at night. And of course at night, the Israelis bombing was, was intensified. And it was in the Sharuk Tower, which was the main media tower on the eighth floor, which had been bombed two days before and, and three or four journalists had been killed there. And the car came to get me uh, and basically we were driving like Schumacher through the streets because at any point, you know, the drone could could release the missile, the, the planes, anyone, because anyone was a target. If you were moving in the streets, you, you were a target. Didn't matter if you were an ambulance, a press car or whatever. He had a, a press a card in the front window, but it, I knew full well it wouldn't mean anything. So he basically sort of screamed to a halt in front of the Shriek Tower and he said to me, it's on the eighth floor. He literally bundled me out of the car. And of course there were no lifts because everything had been bombed, everything, all the electricity was out and so on. As I entered the building um, and went up all the flights of stairs, someone came down to meet me. There was still blood on the floor from the, the journalist that had been killed um a few or, or a couple of days before and I remember entering the studio this was literally the first time I'd ever done an interview of any kind and they sat me next to with my back to a massive window and in fact the only thing I was which was open the only thing I was scared of was falling from the eighth floor um and then I remember turning around and seeing an Apache helicopter hovering like literally only a few meters away from um, the open window. And I thought, okay, <laughs> at this point, I, I, you sort of go into a suspended animation, you know, you, you stop worrying, you stop being um, nervous or afraid, you, you just deal with it because there's nothing else you can do. And then the slightly comical moment was when the cameraman who was in the room with me received a call and he, he was smiling when he said it to me. He said, um, they're going to be 10 minutes late. <laughs> and I mean, people will find it strange that we're laughing, but I think maybe you can understand this, Brian. When you're in a war situation, actually the sense of humor is heightened because humor is a way that people deal with any hideousness in their life you know and palestinians are no different syrians are no different sometimes people kind of say to me my goodness you know that when i post certain things that are funny to me or are funny to syrians despite the hardship they're going through people don't understand it but actually when you're in that environment i mean i remember um when the drones were particularly heavy we would all send each other messages saying well the drone party's here tonight and then it would move of course to another area so then we, you know and and so this sense of humor is what gets people through um even when i was speaking to my friend in Khan Yunus yesterday and he was sending me uh, recordings of the tanks and the gunfire and the warplanes and then he just started laughing. He said, isn't this ridiculous? Like we're having a perfectly normal conversation and all of this is going on around me. And at any minute I might get wiped out, but we're just talking like it's a, a normal environment. Being in war is a very difficult thing for, for people to understand. And, and that's actually one reason I live in Syria because here people understand me. <laughs> you know? 
in the West, people don't understand that intensity. They don't understand that um, when you've been exposed to the inhumanity of humanity, it's very difficult to go back to a kind of a normal, um, whatever normal is, a normal environment where, where you're not with people that understand it. It's very difficult. Vanessa, really, that was a really interesting account of uh, the environment and how you reacted with that environment and how other people did. And I, th I think you made some really excellent points that people who are in very high stress situations have to do something to get through that. Um, I mm. want to say straight away that although I spent time in the military, um, I have to count myself very lucky because I, I was never near um uh or i was let's say i was never in a conflict zone and um for me probably the closest i got to that was the falklands war when the, the particular ship i was on board um we actually got down there i think it was um a day or a day after the armistice was was signed so the fighting had all stopped the day we arrived mm. but nevertheless um, when when we were preparing to go down and the fighting was going on, yeah, there was there was absolute tension. But I want to say that because I'm very conscious that military people out there who've been through conflict zones where wherever it has been, whether it's been in um, Iraq or Afghanistan, if we're talking about British military people, I I can't compete with that sort of experience. And I I think it's only fair that I should say and declare that to the audience but i'm going to say do i understand what you're talking about i think i do yeah mm. vanessa so um i'll just keep pushing on on the bit of you <laughs> becoming a journalist you you you've experienced this all firsthand and of course this makes a huge difference you're not a person who's safe at home commenting on what's happening in the middle east you've you've been there you've lived there you've lived through the violence um, so you, you've got first-hand knowledge, which is invaluable. Um, what about a public talk? Or, or, well, sorry, you've described going and, and, and giving that uh, interview at the <laughs> radio station. When did you do your first big public talk? Because I remember you telling me some time ago that actually <laughs> you found public talking quite difficult. Yeah, I always did, even at work I, when I used to have to give presentations I remember one particularly important one I, I couldn't take my finger off the mouse because if I did my my hand was shaking so much I'd never have got my finger back on the mouse again <laughs> um, for me it's actually easier to to kind of um, be on the ground than it is to 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 speak publicly of course now I've I've done enough of it that I'm relatively um good with it you know not not good I don't consider myself good but I mean I'm, I'm relatively relaxed with it now uh, certainly nothing compared to what I was I'm just desperately um, trying to think when the first time was that I did any public speaking um, I mean I didn't come to Syria until 2016 I tried in 2015 but but didn't get through because of visas and so on um i i would guess it was probably after 2016 that i started really um gathering traction because at that point there weren't very many people on the ground in syria reporting um a different narrative to to the western media of course um there was eva Shamin Nawani, who had actually been covering the conflict fantastically well since 2012. Um, I mean, she's based in Lebanon. Uh, there was uh, a couple of other people, but really that was about it. And then I started in 2016. And of course, at that point, um, we were coming up to the liberation of Aleppo in December 2016. So I would say that was my first really, um, really serious reporting was in Aleppo, December 2016, when I was 
following the Syrian army as they were um, liberating each district of um, East Aleppo. And at that point, I think, um, and, and I'm trying to think, I think in early 2016, I'd written the first of the White Helmet exposés. And that is what, <laughs> that kind of catapulted me into this maelstrom of um, media criticism and so on. So from, I think it was August, 2016 onwards, really. Right, and I'm embarrassed to ask you this question because I should know. <laughs> but when did you when did you get when did you get involved with the UK column? When oh goodness, was... I think that was also two yeah, it was 2016 because if I wrote the two first White Helmet articles, which were the first in a very long archive now, um, and then I think it was around. September 2016 that I came on to UK column because I remember uh, I remember reporting for UK column or with UK column from Aleppo in December so it must have been in that interim period between August and December yeah and and my goodness I mean you you've taught us so much because you know, a lot of uh, a lot of your reports have been the key reports that got us. Well, I'm going to say me. Mike, Mike has always been particularly interested in things to do with the Middle East, but your reports got me thinking about what we in the UK, with the legacy media, I have to call it now, the mainstream media, most people will still respond to, but that narrative so so strong about what was happening in the world i mean i i started to particularly question things around uh, reports of the wars in in iraq i was still i was still in the navy um uh when the first at attacks went in and um first of the western attacks went in and i remember at the time feeling uncomfortable that there was something going on i couldn't quite put my finger on and um from that time onwards i was questioning things and your your very personal reports were adding to that and of course mm. now i'm going to say in 2023 it's very easy for me to uh, look at the world and say my goodness you know we we've just been living a life full of propaganda from the west um on so many issues but much of it uh, a complete pack of lies about how conflicts have started around the world and who the good guys are and who the bad guys so mm -hmm. um i'll just throw that that little one in there but it it was really excellent when you started a report with us and um I'm I'm going to say we <laughs> we've had a lot of fun. I remember at one one stage <laughs> you came you came over and you were going to do a talk at um, Stop the War Coalition, and um, at short notice I was tasked to be your driver, and I remember. Oh God! That, do you remember that on a fairly dark <laughs> and stormy night? I missed the turning, and we had a little bit of a a fraught journey to get. Uh, yes, I definitely there. remember that. <laughs> but, the bit that went with it, which I think we should share with the audience, is that when we we then came to come home, um, there was a, a road closure and we ended up doing a detour through <laughs> some of the narrowest, darkest, wiggliest, uh, Dartmoor <laughs> yes, lanes. I, I, yeah, I do remember that. that yeah. Was, that was quite an adventure. But we... I mean, we... you know, to a degree, it's all been... Um... Gosh, I don't know. Sometimes when you look back over it, you know, we're so kind of caught up in the the here and now and, and what's happening now. You kind of it, it's not you forget, but you, you know, you you don't dwell in the past when you suddenly start going over it again. There's, there's a huge number of <clears throat> experiences, some good, some bad. Um, I mean, some of the adventures getting to Gaza or getting to Rafa. <clears throat> through LRH and so on were, were fairly horrific, actually. I, I mean, I'm very lucky that I have a very strong intuition. And I'm very lucky, again, that I listen to it 
because a lot of people have it, but they don't listen to it. They override it with with intellect or um, emotion. Um, whereas for me, the minute that my intuition kicks in, I, I act on it. Um, and that's often why I actually like working alone in the field, because then I'm, I'm entirely reliant on me. I'm not being overridden by somebody else's agenda or, or you know, whatever. Um, and I have to say that that did literally save my life on, on a number of occasions. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's, it's something that I'm very blessed to have. Um, well, it's, it's a very good point, a very good point, Vanessa. And, and perhaps my response would be that over the years, I've, I've dealt with a lot of people who've been in very bad positions, crisis, crises, <laughs> uh, as a mm. result of I'm going to go to the subject, which is that they've had their children taken away from them. And mm. in their very distraught <clears throat> uh, state of mind as a result of, of that loss and fighting for, for justice, one of the things I always say to them, and it's often, of course, a mother that I'm dealing with, I always say, trust your instinct. Because mm. if you stop trusting your own instinct, in my view, you're lost. That's the thing mm. that comes first, because in a survival situation, that's all you've got is to try is to trust your own instinct. So I think you're identifying something which is very important. And yeah, uh, I can understand what you're saying. If you have somebody else there with you who perhaps is not as strong as you are, um, their uncertainty can then impact on you. Mm. That's an amazing point. Vanessa, yeah, I've got to ask this question because we're here. You're you're a gutsy woman, and and I know from yeah. what you've told uh, told me, shared with the audience today, that you've been through some really tough stuff and you've seen some really unpleasant things. But for other women out there, what what would you say to them to get other women to stand up and fight? What would it be wrongdoing, injustice? What would you say to them to get them doing things instead of just watching? I'd be quite surprised if, if women generally are just watching um, because, you know, I think we are naturally, it, it's kind of our DNA to be the nurturers and the carers and the protectors. Um, and I guess what is really important is the need for that feminine energy. You know, in any situation, even in, in Gaza, women have an innate ability to be able to empathize. I'm not saying that men don't have it, but, but women have it without even really, without even sort of acknowledging it. Um, and therefore, that kind of energy, I think, is incredibly necessary now that we're living in a world that is, it's a grinding world. You know, if we're not talking about war, we're talking about oppression. If we're not talking about oppression, we're talking about poverty. We're talking, or, or you know, um, predator class theft. It, every, everywhere we look, we're looking at a very kind of patriarchal, energy that is feeding on humanity i can't describe it any other way and so therefore in my view and i'm not in any way denigrating masculine energy but i'm just saying now right now the need is for feminine nurturing energy and and for that feminine that feminine touch, I don't want to belittle it either, but it really is something that I can't even really define. Um, and it's very necessary now. And so therefore I think I would have to say, you know, I would guess, I mean, for me, I can't speak for Eva. It'd be interesting to see if you ask her the same question, but if I speak for myself, my work comes from a desire to nurture and to give voices and to uh, end the silence for, for many people. So 
I hope it comes from a place of compassion first and foremost. So you it's would not, you know, it's not a career for me. It's it's a, uh, it, it's something that I couldn't imagine me doing anything else right now. My conscience wouldn't allow me to to go off and do something else right now. And so, therefore, I think for women, I, I think it's important to understand that your voice counts, that your voice is necessary, and that your input is necessary because people need you. Yeah. Thank, thank, thank you for that, Vanessa. And uh, and the bit that goes with this, of course, is for me to say, is to say to you, and what would you say to the men? And I ask this question because <laughs> I I. I know that there are a lot of men out there that are are standing up and they're trying to do the right thing. But I'm also seeing so many men who even people, <laughs> I'm not a big, I'm not a big bloke. I always say this. I'm not a big bloke, but I've got my head firmly above the parapet and I have, have had it above the parapet for many years. And I see many uh, tough guys out there who hide in the shadows they they won't even put their uh, you know their face on social media they comment from the shadows and i'm astonished at, mm. at what i regard as as well actually it's cowardice when i come to it um, people who know something's wrong men who know something wrong and they they are not as far as i'm concerned doing their job which is by by virtue of the fact they're a man, they should have the guts to be able to stand up and and call out the wrongdoing. But a lot of them, a lot of them seem to be hiding, and I find it astonishing. I, I've said, I think I've said it in one of the, the the other interviews that I've done of this series that if you want to meet a coward, meet a senior retired British military officer, because this <laughs> is how I've found them over the years. They won't engage with the topic. And what are they really frightened of? But is that, is that because of a kind of institutionalization? Uh, you know, well, they, they don't want to, I guess, break out of the establishment, I'm, I'm guessing. I, I, um, think, I think that's absolutely it. They, mm. um, they've believed their whole when they get very senior they've gone through a system where they could only become senior by very often being a yes man to what's being asked of them what's taking place around them they then move up the ladder maybe with a bit increase in age and an increasing in experience they begin to understand that actually things weren't quite how they thought but then what what are they they've become a sir for example They've had the the knighthood, but they mm. they might just be a senior retired military officer. I think what they're really scared of is their reputation at the golf club. If if, <laughs> if, if the circle of friends around them um, oh, feel God. that they are well, it's know, peer pressure, then, isn't it? Peer pressure, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, so, I mean, I, I my father, for example, was a sir. Um, I mean, one quite funny story. I, I think you know that you're supposed to back out in front of the Queen. My mother refused. She turned around and walked out front with and caused quite a scandal at the time. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, but that didn't stop him speaking out and that didn't stop him still creating waves um, long after. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think, oh gosh, I mean, I think that applies to, to everyone, um, this whole peer pressure, because that's what gaslighting is, isn't it? You know, it's creating a fear, uh, or an environment in which you're afraid to speak out because you'll be mocked by your peers or you'll be, but, you know, I kind of think that, um, one of my heroes is Dag Hammarskjöld, the first Secretary General of the UN, who was assassinated in 1961 and on a peace mission to Congo, and was actually my father's mentor, largely. Um, and he always said, um, and I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember the exact quote, um, you don't choose the way, the way chooses you. And once you're on the way, 
your conscience does not allow you to deviate. And I think that has that that's always been my mantra. You know, even when sometimes everyone has a wobble, everyone thinks, oh God, do I really want to do this? Because it's just going to bring the sky down on my head again, you know? But then tune into your conscience. And if your conscience is saying you have to do it, you can't remain silent, then you take the consequences. And I think this is the thing. I think people have been gaslighted to the extent where they no longer listen to that inner voice they no longer listen to their conscience they no longer give their conscience the importance it deserves and they don't empower their own conscience and i think that would be a message that i would give to everyone you know male or female sorry the (laughs) the puppy just woke up (laughs) um uh that would be the message well, that that makes uh, complete sense, and and I can certainly understand this because I've I've been on a journey myself, and often felt that my life was on rails, taking me in a particular direction, and I certainly mm-hmm. had to get over this. Yeah, it is it is um, it is uh, concern. Some people call it fear. I never really felt I felt fear, but I did feel concern you know you put your head up you start speaking the flack comes in (laughs) and all of a sudden your life's changed and actually you can't go back that's the thing about it yeah I want to Vanessa I want to end with a with a question for you Uh, you Mm -hmm. you've talked about the the instinct of the woman and uh, you covered that a few minutes ago if I could put you in a room full, full of Israeli women, what would you say oh. to them? Why? Why? Um, what makes your children more valuable than the children of Palestinians? Yeah. That's a very simple question. I have a feeling that if you ever had the opportunity to be in that position and you ask that question, it would prompt quite some quite some debate. And and I think, and this is just me letting my imagination go, I think initially there would be silence. And then probably there would be some uh heated words and aggression and then i think if if the women in the room were able to continue talking to each other um it would slowly but surely come back to reality and compassion and i think i think you'd achieve something positive out of it um one of the reasons i say that is because i believe that when you get ordinary people together they may initially have very different views and they might be quite antagonistic to each other but ordinary people seem to have a way of grounding things out and i believe that much of the problem in the world today is by people we might call politicians but clearly people who have vested interests and also they don't have many of the or they're lacking many of the basic human traits of love and compassion for their own political agenda and it's largely their influence that colors the views of ordinary people Mm. yeah there was actually quite sorry just uh, very quickly there was rather a sad story actually in the last two days there was a former um, idf soldier who had joined breaking the silence which is the group that exposes the crimes of um, its actual former IDF soldiers exposing the crimes of IDF soldiers. But he had developed a friendship with a young um, academic in inside Gaza that had lasted for years, you know, talking about peace and talking about solutions and so on. And three days ago, that friend was killed by an Israeli bomb. Um, and that for me was was kind of symbolic of of what you're talking about you know yeah 
Vanessa, I think we got to a natural end. Uh, I'm, yep. I'm going to say to you, thank you so much because uh, you've you've taken on a, us on a, a really interesting journey through elements <laughs> of your life and what you've come in contact with. But you know, ultimately, I've got to end by saying, uh, if if you were called a bit what feisty at school, it's it's. <laughs> It's done you good because you've ended up a gutsy woman and uh, without having the guts to get in the sorts of environments that you've been in, um, you would have never been able to have given the reports that you have. So I'm going to say to you, well done. And I, I hope that that your actions will be an inspiration to other women and certainly other men. Come on, blokes, if you're listening to this. <laughs> and and we need more people to be lifting stones and reporting you know what's really taking place so i'd i'd like to end there by saying vanessa thank you very much for doing this and uh, i'm sure the audience are going to find it extremely interesting oh, thank you brian thanks for having me on i certainly spoke about more of me than i would do ever normally but um i hope people find it interesting yeah, brilliant. And this is going out over the Christmas period. So we hope that that's a time when people, at least in this country, are going to be having a little bit of a quieter time and a little bit of reflection. So um, maybe they've got a bit of time in their thoughts and their hearts for the suffering that's going on in the Middle East. And, um, and uh, that may change the way they see things. But let's leave it there. You've got a busy day and uh, I yeah. hope all goes well with with where you're off to later. <laughs> thank you, Brian. Thanks okay. very much. Take care. Speak to you very soon. All right. Thank you. Bye bye.